Okay. Is the reading going to be up there? There we go. Okay, from Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Goes before him. Consumes his foes every side. His lightning lights up the world. And the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim the righteousness, and all peoples see his glory. Worship the images, put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Let's uh, pray for a minute here. Heavenly Father, we know that you are the God of everything, of all the earth, of all the heavens, of everything, because you created everything, Lord. Lord, we ask uh, through this series and Trey's message today that you help us conquer our idols, those things that get between us and you, Lord. We can only do it with your help and through your strength, Lord, and we just pray that you open our hearts and our minds, that we find the ways to conquer those things that, uh, that prevent us from fully loving you all that we can, Lord. We just ask that you... Bless Trey as he shares with us this morning, and, and bless the rest of our day, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. So, good morning. <clears throat> you guys awake? Let's just try it again. Good morning. All right. Glad to see you're awake and alive, and hopefully you, you will be both awake and alive by the time we're done with this sermon. So, uh, we have uh, started a couple weeks ago a new series that will go through part or all of the summer uh, called The Idol Factory. And last week in The Idol Factory Part 1, uh, we discovered uh, the basics of idolatry, which is that idolatry is worship gone wrong. And so in Part 1, which was a couple weeks ago because of Mother's Day, uh, we basically saw that we were created to love and to worship God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our strength, with all of our soul, with all of that we are, we were made to love and to worship God, but instead we are fallen human beings and our tendency is to love and to worship and to give ourselves to other things or people, and the Bible calls those things idols. And so we are always worshiping, we are always worshiping something or someone. We are either worshiping God, as the first commandment says, or we are worshiping idols. And so that's the thrust of where we were in part one of the idol factory, and this morning uh, we'll jump into part two of the idol factory, which I call idolatry defined. Idolatry defined. I love uh, verse 7 in Psalm 97. I'll just read it again because I really, I think it's wonderful. Verse 7 says, All who worship images, a reference to idols, all, all who worship images are put to shame. 
those whose boast, those who boast in idols, worship him, all of you gods. A wonderful reminder that all of the idols in our life only leads us to shame. Uh, they do not satisfy, they do not fulfill, uh, they do not deliver what they promise. And here the psalmist calls all of the little g gods, the idols of the land, to turn and to worship the one true God. And so this morning in the Idol Factory Part 2, Idolatry Defined, uh, this is what I hope to do quite simply. Uh, quite simply is this. I hope that we can get a clear definition of what idolatry is. We hinted at it, and we saw a few characteristics of what idolatry was last week, but the emphasis was really more on worship. This morning, what I hope to do is to simply define idolatry for us and begin to challenge us to think of idolatry as not just what happens over there in foreign lands or in animistic cultures or in uh, lands that are not as affluent as ours, but idolatry happens and begins right in here, and it fleshes itself out into all of life. And so hopefully we will uh, define idolatry and then begin to think about what are some of the, some of the potential idols, idols that are in our lives. And that's really where we're going next week is uh, identifying, beginning to identify the idols in our life. So I want to begin this morning with a quote by a guy by the name of Richard Keyes. Uh, it should be up on the screen. He writes pretty exclusively uh, about the subject of idolatry. And I want to share with you a bit of a quote from one of his books, uh, from one of his books, because I think it really hits the point that I want to make this morning. So he says this, as modern people, we usually think of an idol as an animal or human figure made of stone or wood. We have, in effect, distanced ourselves from the whole idea of idolatry by pushing it out to the extreme cultural margins of life. If we do not understand the nature of idolatry, we will not be able to recognize or guard against it in our own lives and communities. He goes on to say, idols are not just pagan altars. Idols are not just pagan altars, but uh, are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated hearts and minds. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. All too often, it is found on center stage. And so really my purpose this morning and my goal is twofold. I want to, want to I, I, I define idolatry. And secondly, I want to begin to encourage you, to admonish you, to consider idolatry as not just something that is on the fringes of life, but something that might very well be on center stage in your life. And so that's where we're going to be this morning in idolatry uh, defined part two. So let's do this. What I want to do is answer this question in point number one, uh, four characteristics. So if you're taking notes, uh, write, write these four characteristics down. What does the Bible have to say about idolatry, uh, both Old and New Testament? Uh, as I began to study this week about what does the Bible holistically have to say about idolatry, the answer is it says a lot. <laughs> Uh, many, many, many scripture references on idolatry. So I'm going to try my best to whittle it down to about four points that I consider to be uh, significant and also a good summary of what the Bible, both Old and New Testament, has to say about idolatry. Because if we're going to begin to define idolatry, well, it's a really good idea for us to begin with what the Bible has to say and let the Bible shape our definition of idolatry. Some of this will be 
old hat for you and it will be very familiar, uh, but I hope that uh, in doing so we will expand your definition and your perspective of what idolatry is. And so four points. Number one, they should be up on the screen for you as well. Number one, idols usually refer to physical representations of deities. Physical representation of deities, which, that is those deities, have specialized power. Now that's a, 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 you know, a mouthful. This is basically what I'm saying, is that idols in the Old Testament and the New Testament usually, emphasis here, usually that was loud, wasn't it? I'll try not to do that. Usually refer to uh, physical objects. And so there were, I mean, really, when you go through the Old Testament, there are all sorts of objects that these idols were crafted into. So some of them looked like humans. Some of them looked like animals. Some of them looked like cosmic uh, beings, such as the sun or the moon or the sky. Uh, the point is, is that usually when we see idolatry in the Bible, it does refer to people who worship, sacrifice, bow down to these physical Objects, And so that's really what most of us think about when we think about idolatry. As our definition said, an idol is an animal or a human figure made of stone or wood. And so that's kind of the baseline. That's what we normally see. But what I want us to begin to see is that these idols, these physical representations, had specialized powers. They had specialized and limited power. And what I mean by that is that they had uh, power or control in the worshiper's mind over certain areas of life. And so when you went to worship, Worship one of these statues of an animal or a human, you didn't inherently see value in that statue. It's not like you came up to the idol and you're like, man, that's a good looking chicken idol. I think I should worship it. You know, that's not how it went. You went to worship the idol because of the power, the specialized and limited power that you think that it possessed. Tim Keller describes these idols well. He says this. The old pagans were not fanciful. The old pagans were not fanciful when they depicted virtually everything as a god. He says they had sex gods, work gods, war gods, money gods, national gods. For the simple fact that anything can be a god that rules and serves as a deity in the heart of of a person. And so the first thing I want you to see is that there were a plethora of gods. They were normally physical objects, but they represented a god, a little g, fake deity that had some kind of power that the worshiper thought that God had some kind of power. Um, and so I want to just play a quick game uh, with you here. And uh, the game is called Name That Idol. So uh, I don't anticipate that you will know the names of these idols, but this is what I want to challenge you to do. Uh, and so let's throw up the first idol. I'm going to show some pictures or representations of uh, some idols that are found in the Bible and others that are f uh, found in Greek culture. And I'm going to tell you the name of this representation of this particular idol, but I want you to guess what it represented, what the power was, if it was a god of X, Y, and Z, right? And so this first one is Dagon. The deity, the idol is, is Dagon, and this is a Philistine. If you've heard of the Philistines, they're in the Bible quite a bit. This is a Philistine god. Uh, most say the kind of primary Philistine god, or one of the big ones. So anyone want to take a guess? I know it's a little fuzzy. As to what Dagon was a god over? Water? Water? Very close. What else? Very close. 
Fish. Excellent. So fishing. Dagon was the god of fishing. Uh, I think we have one more image. This is a more, maybe an easier representation. There we go. There's Dagon. Half man, half fish. So I I gave you kind of a, you know, a layup here. Okay, right? So these are going to get a little bit more difficult, but hopefully not increasingly. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, The next one. Okay, here's this guy. Uh, Notice what he has. This is Ares. Ares. He is a Greek God, Ares, anyone want to venture what he is a god over? War. Okay, that's an easy one. What gave it away? Was it the shield or maybe the cool-looking helmet? Uh, Yeah, he is the god of war, Ares. Uh, Okay, move on to the next one. This next one, this is going to be a hard one. This is probably the hardest one there is. So take guesses. Don't be ashamed to be wrong. But this is a representation of the ancient Canaanite deity called uh, Baal, or Baal, depending upon how you say it. Uh, You're probably familiar with that if you know your Bible. Israel really struggled with worshiping of this idol. No, let me just point you uh, in what I hopefully will be a right way. Pay attention to what is in his hand. I know it's fuzzy, and I kind of had a hard time figuring out what it might be. There's something in this hand over here, and then there's something that he's reaching up into up here. This is a hard one, but take some guesses. What do you think? Yes, wheat, corn, prosperity. You, man, you guys are so good. Absolutely. He is, let's throw it up there, Baal, the Canaanite god of rain. That's very close. He was the god of rain because you see the wheat and you see, I think what he's trying to do is kind of stir up the rain up there. So you guys are very close, associated with the harvest. Absolutely. Baal. And this was a big one for Israel. Uh, let's keep going. This one, again, will be somewhat challenging. I may give you a hint. Notice, uh, I think I've actually seen this statue in real life, maybe. I'm not sure. Does it look familiar to you? I think it does. I think we've been there. Anyways, uh, this is, um, I'll tell you the name here, this is Asclepios. Now, if you remember back when we did Revelation 2 and 3, I mentioned this particular god. This is Asclepios. Uh, Hint, what is on his staff? Okay, then what might it represent? What do you think he's got over? Snakes? That would be a wonderful guess because there is a snake there. What else? I think I heard it. Healing. I heard healing, and I didn't know what else was in there, but that's absolutely right. In fact, you know uh, the symbol for healing in our culture today is what? Staff with a snake, and that's where we get it from. Uh, The Greek god Asclepios. Okay, one more. This is the Greek god Artemis. Artemis. Now notice what he has. Uh, This one should be fairly easy. What do you think? Dear Caesar. Dear Caesar. (laughs) That's right. He's the god of, or she, I should say, uh, is the goddess of deer season. Yeah, mostly. Uh, What is it? (laughs) Yeah, you're pretty much right. Go ahead. Artemis, the Greek god of the hunt. So yeah, pretty much. Deer season, the god of the hunt. And so uh, let's scroll past those. Hopefully that's been a... uh, uh, a fun little game. But the point that I want to make, and, and hopefully all of this makes sense, is that they were physical representations of things, but they were not just pretty-looking things. They represented something. So number one, idols usually referred to physical representation that's, that had specialized power. Number two, idols were often sacrificed for what they could provide the worshiper. You see where this is going, right? There were gods of war, gods of money, gods of the hunt, gods of healing. And so these idols were worshipped and sacrificed to primarily for what they could provide the one doing the sacrificing for, right? Like I said, it's not like the idols were worshipped just for their inherent value or goodness or beauty. They were worshipped because the worshiper wanted to get something from the idol, which in my opinion actually makes the real idol of the heart 
themselves. Um, and we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. Uh, things that, in the Old Testament primarily, uh, things that people would sacrifice to idols include uh, animals, so that's kind of normal, uh, grain, wine, and here's the worst one, even children. Uh, pagan deities often demanded child sacrifice. And the way uh, that it worked in that system is that the, the greater the sacrifice of the worshiper, the more, uh, the more they thought they could appease and or manipulate that particular idol. And so what I want us to see is they're physical, they had specialized powers, and they were worshipped for really what they could do for the worshiper. Uh, number three, the third thing we see about idolatry in the Bible is that while idols usually are physical in nature, sometimes, in fact, in numerous, refer- numerous references, both in the Old and the New Testament, idols actually were non-physical things. So that's point number three. Idols were non-physical. And this gives us a clue to the fact that idolatry doesn't just happen where there are totem poles erected, but it happens here in Cisna Park and in our homes and in our workplaces. Because idolatry, biblically speaking, is not just the worship or sacrifice uh, to a physical object, but to things that extend beyond. So let me give you uh, three Old Testament examples, and then I'll give you three New Testament examples. Uh, number one, jot down these references. We're not going to look at these scriptures, uh, but jot down these references. First Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15.23. There we have... Uh, the writer uh, essentially saying that rebellion, choosing to rebel against what God has said, God's authority, that rebellion is linked to idolatry. And this is when Saul rebelled. He rebelled against God's clear command. Uh, They were at war. They were supposed to kill uh, everyone and not take any of the uh, animals. And Saul disregarded that. And the prophet then basically says that rebellion is the same as idolatry. So taking this is what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. That, according to the Old Testament, is idolatry. Um, Also, Jeremiah chapters 2 through 4, scattered throughout those three chapters, Jeremiah 2 through 4, we see protection, or you could say safety, for the nation of Israel was called an idol. And here's why. In those chapters, essentially, the nation of Israel made what, uh, what were protective treaties. They were called protective treaties with the nations of Egypt and Assyria. And the way it worked was basically this. E- uh, Israel thought it was smaller, it was defenseless, it needed some big, bad military power to come and to pro- provide safety and protection. And apparently, it did not trust God to do that for them. And so they made these treaties. They made these protective treaties and they basically gave large sums of money to Egypt and Assyria and also some uh, political subjugation and control. And they basically said, protect us, protect us. And God comes uh, through the prophet Jeremiah and he says, you're seeking protection and safety, not from me. And that's idolatry because you should get it from me. Uh, The third example is found in uh, Habakkuk 1.11. In Habakkuk 1.11, the prophet Habakkuk is referring and speaking to the coming Babylonian army. And he makes this little phrase, and he basically says uh, that their military might is their God. He basically says their military strength is their God. That is, what do they trust in? What do they hope in? What's their pride in? It's the fact that at that time, Babylon was the big, bad military power. It was their God because they trusted in it. And so three examples from the Old Testament that show us that idolatry is just not physical, it's spiritual. It's 
we'll define it here in a little bit. Uh, some three examples from the New Testament a bit, a bit quick, quicker. Uh, Ephesians 5.5. 5. Ephesians 5.5, 5, we see uh, the, the, the Apostle Paul basically saying that covetousness or greed, when we want something uh, that we should not or cannot have, when we covet somebody else's stuff, uh, the prophet basically says that's idolatry. <laughs> that's not just a you know, just doing it. It's, it's idolatry. Philippians 3.19, he links gluttony, gluttony to idolatry. And then by extension, Matthew 6.24, Jesus talks about the love of money and how you can only, you have to, you have to worship God or money. You can't worship both. And so by extension, uh, the love of money can be an idol. And the point that I want us to see is simply this. Um, idolatry is not just on uh, the fringes of life, but it can often be found on center stage in our life because idolatry is not just physically bowing down to an object, but it's seeking things, seeking things that only God can give us from people or things outside of God. So number four, number four, uh, the Old Testament specifically has uh, three ways of thinking about idolatry. And so in the Old Testament, idols we love our idols. Write down these three words. We love our idols, we trust our idols, and we obey our idols. These are basically three images that speak to our relationship or to people's relationship to idols. How do people respond or worship to, to idols? Number one, we love them. Uh, this is really a marriage metaphor. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Oftentimes, idolatry, worshiping, serving, sacrificing to another god, is often called spiritual adultery. It's like cheating on God, who is pictured as our spouse, and we are loving, longing for, wanting something or someone other than him. We give our affections to someone primarily uh, over him. So Hosea, Turn with me now to Hosea. We'll look at the, these passages. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea is in your Old Testament, and uh, so you can flip uh, there. Uh, if you have your NIV Pew Bible, uh, it will be on page, as I get there, Hosea 2.13. It will be on page 733. Hosea, which is a marvelous Old Testament book, if you want to learn all about idolatry and this image of spiritual adultery connected to idolatry, read Hosea. And read what God asked Hosea to do. It's amazing. It blows, blows my mind. In verse 13 of Hosea chapter 2, I think we see this, uh, this image of Israel going after uh, false lovers, cheating on her spiritual spouse. Verse 13, God says this, I will punish her, referring to Israel, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the balls, the idol we just looked about, looked at, and then notice the imagery here. She decked herself with rings and with jewelry. What is she doing? She's making herself pretty to go cheat on her spiritual spouse. Uh, she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. And went after her lovers, but she forgot me, declares the Lord. So there's one illustration of this idea that we love idols. We go after them. We, we cheat on our spiritual spouse, if you will. Secondly, not only does the Old Testament say we love idols, but uh, the word that I would use is we trust in them or we, we, look to th we look to them to save us. We trust in them. This is a religious metaphor, not a, um, not a marital metaphor, but a, a religious, uh, if you will, metaphor. And the idea is basically that God is our Savior, 
Uh, He delivers us from sin, from judgment, from even all sorts of difficult situations. God, we look to God to save us, to be our Savior, but when we worship idols, we look to other things to deliver us, to save us. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, and so turn a little bit more backwards with me in your Bibles. Uh, It should be up on the screen as well. Jeremiah chapter 2 is where we find this reference, and that is on, as I get there, 228. That is on page 614, if you uh, have it in your NIV Bible. And in the first part of that verse, Jeremiah 228, we see this image of trusting in idols rather than trusting in God. God says this, speaking again to the the people of, of old, Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. That's an illustration of the fact that they should turn to God to save them. God should be their deliverer, but instead they trust in other things, people, to save them. And the third image is that we not only love idols, we we not only trust in idols, but we obey idols. This is a political metaphor. And so basically God is pictured as the king. He is the king of the nation and uh, God's people are to obey, submit their wills to him. He is the divine monarch. But instead of obeying our king, we commit treason against our king in doing what he says not to do or not doing what he does say to do. And so uh, one example is in 1 Samuel. So turn further in your um, Old Testaments back to the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, you might be uh, somewhat familiar with this story when Israel wanted a human king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we'll read verses 7 and 8, and uh, page 218. Page 218. And so here's the the background. Israel basically wanted a king, and uh, they rejected God as their king. They didn't want God to be their king. They wanted a human king to rule over them. And notice... Notice what this text says. And the Lord told him, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not, it is not that they have, uh, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Notice the political imagery there. They reje- rejected me as their king. So the people say, we don't want to follow you, God, as our king. We want, a, we want a, an earthly king. And then notice verse 8. I've never really, this has never struck me like it did until this week. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, this is what they're doing, forsaking me, serving other gods, and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Notice that he links the idea of treason, rebellion against their king to idolatry. Do you notice that? And so uh, four things I want us to see. We're going to look at a definition and we're going to begin to apply this. Four things about idolatry in the Bible. Physical things. People sacrifice to those physical things because of what they could get from that idol. Idols are not only physical though, they are non-physical as well, both in the Old and the New Testament. And then we are mostly described as worshiping idols by loving them, wanting them more than God, by trusting in them to save us from our situation and obeying them rather than God. So let's, let's look at a definition. I've got a couple definitions. The first one is mine. It's probably more confusing. The second one is Tim Keller's. It's probably more clarifying. Uh, <clears throat> but that's because I want to include everything in my definition. 
I'm like that. So here is what I think we see about idolatry from what we've seen in the Old Testament. This is how I define it. It should be up on the screen. Uh, Any person, any place, any activity, any immaterial idea, and I would include even any feeling that we do for things. We sacrifice to them more than we sacrifice to God. That is, it is the object of our chief sacrifice rather than God. Or anything that we want, we desire more than God. Or anything that we obey above God. Or anything we seek deliverance from other than God. So you see uh, how I've incorporated um, all of these elements. So here's the easy version, Tim Keller's version. Tim Keller says this. I don't think it's up on the screen. Tim Keller describes idolatry this way. When you look to something created... When you look to some created thing to give you what only God can give you, that's idolatry. And I think that that's pretty much what I've said in a short, sweet, succinct way. Looking to God to get anything, to give you anything that God should be giving you. So, what does this look like? Uh, With the few minutes that we have remaining, I'm going to flesh this out my best for you. To begin to think about, to begin to question what some potential idols in our hearts and in our lives can be. Next Sunday, we're going to spend a whole uh, sermon investigating and prodding and trying to flesh this out and identify idols in our life. I want to begin uh, by, doing, uh, by doing that. And the first point is this. The first application point is this. Anything can be an idol. We've said this already. Anything can be an idol. That's because everything has been, in the history of the world, an idol. <clears throat> Again, Tim Keller says it this way. Anything can be an idol, and everything has been an idol. And so as we begin to think about these things in our lives, or these people that we trust in, that we love, that we obey, um, really, the sky is the limit, I think, as to what idols can be. So let me just throw some out here at you. Work can be an idol. That is building our career or the money that we receive from it or the identity that we wrap ourselves up in our work, especially for guys. Kids can be an idol. We're going to talk about that next uh, in a couple weeks. Kids can certainly be our idols. Um, Being in in any kind of relationship, whether it be dating relationship or even uh, a marriage relationship, your spouse, although good, can become the ultimate thing and can be that which you live for. Peer approval, that is seeking people's approval or acceptance of you. This is one that I struggle with, and we're going to talk about it in the weeks to come. Needing approval, status, some kind of status in the community, whether it be uh, financial status or involvement in particular elements of activities, status. Competence, that is your idol is you're competent in what you do. Your education, your beauty, how you look, your fitness, how in shape you are. Possessions, any possession can be an idol. Even hard work, I think, can be an idol because you trust in your hard work rather than God. Personal fulfillment can be an idol. This is when you say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do that makes me feel good. And I don't care what God says. We're going to talk about that. Personal fulfillment. Certain hobbies can become your idol. Uh, Political parties even can be your idol. You trust in them to deliver you. Your nation or your state or your city can be an idol. Codependency can be an idol, which basically means you need to be needed. If you need to be needed, that can be an idol. Your safety, your well-being can be an idol. Your standard of living, where you are in the socioeconomic plane or realm, can be your idol. A sports team can be your idol. Even your moral record can be an idol. And the point of this long list is simply to say, 
Anything can be an idol because everything has been an idol. So number two, let's begin to flesh this out. Uh, In the Old Testament, again, what we do with idols is we love them, we trust them, and obey them. What does that look like? What could that look like? And so I have some questions for you that if you're taking notes, I'd like for you to write these questions down because they will begin to help you and I think about the possibilities of idols in our life. Uh, So the first question is, Uh, as it relates to what we love, as it relates to loving idols. Remember, in the Old Testament, we love, we commit spiritual adultery on God our spouse because there's something that's really more satisfying, we think. There's something that we really want in our heart of hearts more than God. So here's the question, actually two or three questions. What makes you most happy or feel most satisfied? Just think about that. What makes you most happy and what makes you most satisfied? Secondly, what do you daydream about? I don't know if you ever think about that. You ever think about where you allow your mind to wander in the moments of fleeting thought, whether it be as you're going to bed or rising in the morning or doing your job and your mind is elsewhere. What is it that you daydream about and you're longing for? What is it that you enjoy thinking about the prospects of happening? That is, what is it that hasn't happened yet, but you would sure like for it to happen? What are you thinking about that prospectively could be? All of these things may be our idols, that which we love, that which we really want more than God. Um, Here's a quick example. Uh, one of the idols that I mentioned uh, could be sports teams. So I love sports. Old hat, you know that. Um, I, I have found myself, uh, especially on nights when I have trouble falling asleep, my wife is sleeping beside me because other than when she's pregnant, she sleeps generally pretty well. And she goes to bed like in a minute or two, and I'm like, what? <laughs> 45 minutes later, I'm falling asleep. Um, that's how it works. And so I find myself just allowing my mind to freely Rome, you know, as I'm trying to fall asleep. And I found myself at times in my life that, you know what pops into my head? I see the maroon and white. I see football helmets. I see burnt orange getting crushed. I see touchdowns being scored. I see national championship banners being hung in Kyle Field, and my mind meanders to what essentially... In many, many moments, if I were uh, probably honest, that's what I want the most right then. I don't want, I don't want God. He's not going to satisfy me. I, don't, I, w- I want that. That's what I want in that moment. So what about you? What do you love the most? Number two, not only do we love idols, but we trust. We trust in our idols. So here are some questions for you to begin to think about what it is that you might trust in to save you from whatever it may be, from your sin or for, from uh, some bad situation. Uh, here's some, question number one. <clears throat> what is your biggest fear? What is your biggest fear or nightmare? What is it that as you wake up from that kind of nightmarish dream and you know it exemplifies the reality of your life, that if that happened, it is a horrible dream? What's your biggest fears? And then the second follow-up question will help identify this idol. What is it that you fear the most? And then what is it that you're looking to to save you or to keep you from allowing that to happen? What is it then, this is what you fear the most, 
What is it that you're doing or trusting in that might deliver you, that might save you, that might keep that from happening? Whatever the answer is to that second question might be an idol in your life because instead of looking to God to deliver you, you are looking to something else. Um, Number three. Uh, Number three. Actually, a couple examples here. Uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll up at Seattle has uh, coined this phrase, functional saviors. Functional saviors. If you've seen some of his teachings, you may be familiar with this idea before. But I think it's a helpful way to begin to think about functionally, in reality, what it is that we are trusting in. And so he has this idea of certain things, certain idols in our life are functional saviors. That is, we seek for them to save us, certain people, certain objects, to save us from what he calls our functional hell to get us into our functional heaven. We're in a bad spot. We want to be in this spot. Something's going to get us there. What is that object? And so a couple examples that he uses. Um, if your functional hell, if it were, your place that you don't want to be is singleness, you fear it, you dread it, you don't want to be single any longer. That's like the epitome of dissatisfaction is to be single. And it hadn't been too, too long since I've been in that boat. And that's a very real thing, not only for adults, but for kids. They have this idea that they have to, have to be in a relationship to be whole. And so if that's your functional hell, then maybe a relationship, a boy or a girl or a spouse, might be your functional savior to get you out of that functional hell, if you will, if you will to your functional heaven. It will deliver you. It will save you. Here's another one he uses. Maybe the idea of approval. You might have low self-esteem. You don't like the fact you can't stand it when somebody doesn't like you or they have a problem with you. There, there's me. I'm there. We're going to talk about that in, in the weeks to come. If that's your functional hell, then you will have functional saviors to help you uh, to not allow that to happen. And so you'll lie. You'll lie just to save face. Because the primary thing is what people think about you, not what God thinks about you. So you'll lie to your friends or to your, to your co-workers. Uh, you might give in on your morals in a dating relationship because you don't want that relationship to end. So you're going to give. You're going to do whatever he or she wants you to do uh, because you cannot stand not being, feeling like they will not approve of you. Uh, in your marriage, you'll do, you will keep the peace. <laughs> you won't bring up anything that will cause tension or the, uh, the boat to rock, even if it needs to be, but because you value, they want, you can't have the, the boat rock. You, they have to like you. They have to prove of you. And if you bring up that subject, which has to be addressed, they may not like you. They may not approve of you. And so you will allow it to be smooth. And so, uh, first of all, we love idols. We trust idols. Here's the third one. We obey idols. We obey idols. That is, God is our king. We are to submit to what he says, but we rebel and we submit to what we or other people say and they become functionally our idols. So here's a couple questions for you. Three, really. What are some areas in your life that are non-negotiable? What are the areas in your life that are non-negotiable? That is, you will not negotiate uh, on whether you do it or not. What areas in your life might be off limits to God? Off limits. What will, here's another way to, to say the same question. What will you t- continue to do or continue to not do regardless of what God says? Those things you obey. 
They may be your idols because you obey them as a king. Uh, one final example, and we'll shut down shop here. When I was a new believer, when I, I became a Christian when I was 15, maybe 16, um, but I was like a sophomore or maybe a junior in high school, and uh, I just became a Christian, and I placed my, placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I came to the realization that I was not good enough for God, that I could not earn my way into heaven, that Jesus Christ, his perfect life, I needed. His death, bearing the wrath for my sins, I needed. And I believed in him, and I trusted in him. And God changed my heart. I was born again. I was a new person. Um, But it was a slow process. And there were several things in my life, as there are now, I'm sure, that I did not want to give up to God. And so uh, pretty early on in my youth group, I found out that uh, we shouldn't, as a believer, I shouldn't really date or uh, get married to someone who is not a Christian. That's really not a good thing, the scripture says. But there was a girl that uh, I wanted to date and dated period, uh, just briefly in high school. And I, re- I distinctly remember my friend telling me, who is a Christian also, a mature believer, he said, God says not to do that. You, sh- you shouldn't do that. It's not for your good. And I remember telling him bluntly, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I just told him, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And in that moment, instead of bowing the knee to King Jesus, I bowed the knee to that girl or my desires, and I obeyed myself, or I obeyed that dating relationship, and I did not obey God. So in closing... I want to ask you another question and we'll wrap up. Have you marginalized idolatry to the fringes of your life? Have you marginalized this this idea that idolatry is just over there and it's not actually over here or in here? That's my chief goal this morning. That's what I want and praying that God would do is he would open our eyes to the fact that there may very well, even as believers in Jesus, there are things and people and ideas and feelings that we worship and that we serve and that we obey and that we trust in. Um, And so I hope that your eyes have been opened to a big, broad definition of idolatry. And my heart of hearts is that um, idolatry would go from, in our mind's eye, from the fringes of our life, that we would consider that they might actually be found on center stage. And then in the coming weeks, as we identify those idols that are on center stage in our life, that we would kick them out, (laughs) that we would get rid of them. We would see them, we would get rid of them, and it's not enough just to get rid of them because then we'll fill it with something else. And then my hope is that we see in the weeks to come that Jesus and that God through the Holy Spirit is ultimately more satisfying and good and uh, fulfills our, our deepest longings and that we would replace that idol that we kicked out, not with another idol, but with God. And that we would worship him and love him with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might, with all that we are. Let's pray.